0: Hello and welcome to this week in the Canadian Revolution, a podcast by Fightback, the Marxist voice of labor and youth. We live in a revolutionary epoch. The crisis of the capitalist system is creating political polarization and instability in every single country, as millions of people look for a way out. The product of this is unprecedented social upheaval and yes, revolution. Now we firmly believe that the crisis of capitalism is creating the conditions for socialist revolution. Yes, even in Canada. The point of this podcast is to provide a Marxist analysis of what Trotsky described as the molecular process of socialist revolution. This week in the Canadian Revolution, uh, we are going to talk about a crisis in Canadian labor. Now, what does that mean? Well, as you are probably well aware, the inflation rate has been creeping up month after month, just in February, as it was was up to 5.7%. People are feeling that uh, uh, in their uh, food bills, their gas bills, and pretty much especially poor working class Canadians uh, are really feeling it um and wages are not increasing so that is a wage cut it is a cut to the standard of living uh meanwhile uh and yes and 60 percent of Canadians said in a recent poll a week ago that they're worry they worry about feeding their families um meanwhile last year corporate profits shot up 46 percent to 1.4 trillion dollars uh You'd think that something would be done about this, but something is not being done about this. Uh, instead, the Ontario government has instituted a 1% pay cap. Uh, just as one example of many things <laughs> that is being done, the governments and the bosses are forcing workers to deal with inflation themselves. To, to They're not going to increase wages. Uh, yes, and unions have been accepting uh, contracts that either are 0% or maybe 1% wage increases at best. Uh, And there is no movement. There's no strikes most of the time, Uh, in spite of, uh, we'll get into that, a lot of desire to strike. This situation pales in comparison, I think, to kind of what we've seen. I don't want to over- Below it, but in the U.S., you you have seen a bit of an upsurge in the labor movement, an upsurge in class struggle. Uh, We just got news recently that the Kellogg's workers who went on a three-month strike got 15% wage increase over three years, which, in these conditions of 5.7% inflation, is essentially a wage freeze. But that is compared with what is being implemented in Canada, what is being accepted by the trade union leadership in Canada is incredible. Uh, And you had had strike-tober last year, uh, which was yes, a layer of the working class in certain places in the U.S. entering into strike action, into class struggle. Uh, You had Chicago teachers wildcat strike over inadequate COVID measures during the pandemic. Um, So, yeah, in many ways, the first will be last, the last will be first. (laughs) America, uh, the labor movement seems to be a bit more alive than the labor movement in Canada. But why is that? Well, a big one that has come to light recently is uh, a big thing that has come to light is Jerry Diaz, the now former president of the largest private sector union in the country, Unifor, with 310,000 members uh is was forced to resign first they said it was about uh for uh uh, health reasons now it's come out that it's because of corruption um you have qp local 79 in toronto where one of the i believe the president uh was uh is accused of taking a $50,000 bribe. <laughs> um, and, and I think this these two things go together. The, the, the general situation of no strikes, massive inflation, uh, our wages aren't rising, people are having a lot of trouble and you're having this corruption uh, in the labor movement. Um, so yeah, maybe we could get into talking about uh, what, maybe we'll talk about Jerry Diaz. I think that's probably the most clearest examples of this. And then we can, we can go into a few other things. With me today, I have, once again, uh, Fightback editor, Alex. So yeah, Alex, maybe uh, uh, great to have you on again. You want to maybe go in and talk a bit about what, what,
1: what is happening with Unifor and with uh, Jerry Diaz? Yeah, actually, before we get into that, I think just want to underline the point that the Canadian Labour isn't fighting. Like even when it does fight, a couple of weeks ago, we had the CP rail lockout and strike. Again, they ended up settling for binding arbitration under threat of back-to-work legislation. So, and and then, yes, you've got QP79 and Unifor. Actually, I'll, I'll correct you a little bit on QP79. It wasn't a blatant bribe. It's a bit more complicated than that. It was the... The vice president of the local, this is city, city of Toronto workers, was put on a pensions board and a bit for the unionized workers, the uh, OMERS, uh, I think it's a Ontario Municipal Employees Retirement Service or something like that, I think is what it stands for. And out of that, he got a $49,000 paycheck. It's very nice, very nice little thing to get for an elected union representative. Oh, an indirect bribe. <laughs> an indirect bribe. No, no, no. But then, because it was the vice president sitting on this board and the president approved him for that, then he the president made sure that he gave half of his $49,000 to the president, right? And you're not supposed to get a financial... Uh, benefit from these things. So anyway, the, the president's been forced to resign. They're trying to get the VP to resign. He's refusing, actually. And it, it, it's, it's... But why are they getting these ridiculous payments in the first place? It is it is a process of legal corruption, uh, even if it's not illegal corruption? Well, this one is illegal corruption, but there is a whole legal process of corruption too. But the uniform situation is straight out of a movie it it it's laughable if you didn't know it was actually happening that yeah jerry Diaz, or probably probably the the best known trade union leader in canada and for, for all the wrong reasons and uh, the way it started yeah in january he said oh he's got some health problems he's stepping down they started a uh, election for to replace the president uh, dias's uh, so one of his right hand men was running with the endorsement of Dias, and endorsement of the executive to be the new president. They tried to get that election done very, very quickly, but then there was a leak. There was a leak that said, aha, there's actually some corruption investigation. And they, so they wanted, they wanted to, that the executive wanted to hush all of this up and they couldn't because there was a leak. But when there was a leak, they said, they said oh, we can't give you any details. It's like, what do you mean you can't give details? There's a, myth, there's a presidency election going on right now and they can't give the workers details. In fact, I, I was writing to these people and I got a whole bunch of uh, uniform apparatchiks saying, oh, no, it would be inappropriate to give details, you know, um, and uh, but the pressure was ridiculous. The rank and file was going, what the hell, what the hell, you know, t- give us details. Uh, and eventually they were forced to. Uh, actually, And I, I asked these apparatchiks, like, what do you say now? Now it's all come out and silence, you know, it's like just embarrassed bureaucrats. But the actual details were some supplier of rapid tests, which has also not been named, giving a bribe is just as much a crime as taking a bribe. And they are protecting this corporation and gave Dias $50,000 to facilitate the sale of rapid tests to uh, various uh, corporations which uh, Unifor works at, and and then when it was either discovered or as a backhander to pay off uh, Deese's other assistant, he split that in the middle and gave him you know twenty five thousand in cash in a minor min- uh, envelope, and and he took it, and he took it as hush money. But then, after a few days, he, th- you know, his like conscious started getting a little bit the better for him, and maybe he was smarting a bit that he was stabbed in the back because he was promised to be the new the next president, uh, bureaucratically established from the top down. But the other assistant got the uh, uh, the nod and the wink. So when you think about the sort of millions of dollars of. Uh, uh, legal and illegal bribes that being president of this union uh, uh, gets you, then twenty five thousand dollars. Oh, that's just just pocket change. So then he uh, told on his boss, and uh, and and here we are. Uh, and, and yeah, and there's like crazy stories about um, sort of condos in downtown Toronto and Florida. Maybe you want to talk about that, Joe?
0: <clears throat> yeah, in all of that, there was <laughs> there was details of uh, Jerry Diaz a union president. supposed to be a worker, right? (laughs) Or at least he was a worker, I suppose. Uh, Having a $1.2 million condo in downtown Toronto. And I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, Alex, because I know you followed this closer than I did, but there was no record of how he, there's no record of a mortgage. Uh, I don't know about you, but I don't know how I would possibly, or any working class person (laughs) that I know for that matter, would possibly buy a 1.5 uh 1.2 million dollar condo wait, wait, without, without some with form 1. of
1: mortgage go yeah, you just turn up with 1.2 million dollars in cash in a brown envelope that's that's yeah. how you buy a, a condo right <laughs> right that's, that's how normal working class people do these things don't they well if
0: if i knew of the magic <laughs> money tree where i could get that sort of money <laughs> maybe hey maybe i can get elected at a union maybe that's where it's at i didn't know that it was a business opportunity apparently it is in some unions um but yeah there's that apparently he also has a some sort of condo or something in Florida uh you know he's been up he's been in the the top of this big union for a while now so like there has been some sort of corruption uh, it's probably more widespread than we know actually i bet you there's widespread shielding of many different peoples. and you're only knowing a little bit probably the tip of the iceberg but yeah this really i think shows the, the Jerry Diaz situation in and of itself, I believe is only indicative of a larger problem in the movement, which is not only of corruption. The corruption in and of itself is only a symptom of a bigger problem of the complete disconnect of the the labor bureaucracy from the ranks of the working class. And which also helps to explain why why we don't have a generalized fight back against these horrible conditions, horrible contracts, uh, now, that being said, maybe, maybe now's the time to get it back into Jerry Diaz. Like We talk about him being corrupt, but it's, it's not as though the corruption comes out of nowhere. He also has a legacy, a political legacy, uh, as leader of Unifor. Do you want to maybe talk to, to a bit about that? What has Jerry Diaz actually, accomplished?
1: Actually, Joel, first of all, we need to give full disclosure that you and I are actually Unifor members. We are Unifor members. We are Unifor members. This is our union. This is... Uh, our, our, our glorious leader. We're not outsiders uh, complaining. <laughs> yes, and, and, and all of the uh, the fight back staff are organised with Unifor. So, I, and yes, but it, it is a lamentable, uh, well, lamentable history of both uh, of uh, sellout. Like Jerry Diaz. Well, what is it, What has he done? There was in Oshawa. The GM Oshawa plant, plant historic auto plant, the the plant that won the the right to collective bargaining and industrial unionism in Canada, absolutely vital strike in the uh, the post war period, and GM shut that down. And in response to that shutdown, there was spontaneous wildcats by those workers. Fantastic movement. Insane anger could have spread to the whole of GM in Canada and even potentially the States and even to the whole auto sector. There was a movement for nationalization of General Motors led by the, uh, the, the well, we, we led that call, Bite led that call. And it was taken up by the Oshawa Labor Council. And, but what happened? The Unifor executive sheepdogged everybody back to work. So no, 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 you can't do this, you can't do this, don't worry, we, we will try and uh, get you something. What did they do? They started a racist anti-Mexico campaign, don't buy Mexican carts. Scandalous, totally scandalous, rather than direct workers' action. And, and the, the plant shut shut down, and then subsequently they re- reopened it, and this was declared as a big big victory, but they reopened it at half the wage rate. And... Massive two-tier pensions and benefits, uh, and and actually, yeah, talk about two-tier, not just uh, GM Oshawa, throughout the auto sector, signing on to two-tier contracts. People not, might not know what that means. That means that new hires get lower wages, lower benefits, lower pensions, and 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 it really is selling out the future, and it's incre- and it's it's a cancer within the union, D is signed off to all of these two tier contracts in order to avoid strikes, avoid struggle, unwilling to struggle. And the reason this is so short term, it's actually short termed from the workers who are voting for it, the workers who aren't on the lower contract, because, okay, you've got all these youngsters hired and they're hired at lower wages and conditions. Uh, and in, at the beginning, the, the older workers have seniority and have the majority. But eventually, time continues on, and the younger, lower paid workers are the majority. What do you think is going to happen then? Well, the younger workers are going to vote for a contract that screws over the older workers uh, on, on the higher wage rates. So the general, it, it's just a cancer within the movement, uh, destroys solidarity. So there's, there's two 2 tier contracts that was under Dears, Oshawa sellout that was under Dias. Then big proponent of strategic voting. Um, I I don't think we've got a lot of time to go into that. It's a bit more political than it is strictly Labour politics, but strategic voting, this is voting Liberal. Saying that voting Liberal is okay, uh, supposedly to keep out the Conservatives, when in fact (laughs) it doesn't work. Actually in the last Ontario provincial election, that uh, Unifor and the OFL were supporting anybody but conservative. Uh, what they ended up doing was putting lib- making people vote liberal. It actually suppressed the anti-Ford vote because the NDP was best placed to, to uh, challenge the conservatives. So removing the sort of class line in politics. and And then subsequently, Once you said it's okay to vote for the main capitalist party, then what did he do? Yeah, the liberals. What did he do? Well, if it's okay to vote liberals, well, really it's okay to support anybody, whether liberal, conservative, doesn't matter. And he appeared on a platform supporting Doug Ford when he uh, declared a fifteen-dollar minimum wage, which was itself a scandal because he cancelled the fifteen-dollar minimum wage four years ago. Right. So we've had four years of inflation eroding the minimum wage, and then Diaz is standing on the same platform. And that's just strategic voting is actually a conduit to vote to supporting any capitalist party, total sellout. And the fact that he's taking a literal corruption black backhander when he's functionally politically corrupt for years and years and years. uh, Well, it's, it's not surprising. And it's merely the cherry on top of a terrible legacy.
0: Yep. We will talk about that more in the future. This, uh, yeah, this is just to say that this is part of Jerry Diaz's legacy, and it's, it's all connected to the problems in the labor movement at large as well, where the labor bureaucracy has become disconnected from the ranks of the workers, and they have drifted towards buddy-buddy with a lot of the capitalist parties, especially the liberals. Uh, and you have, yeah, you have uh, elements of corruption, you have selling out strikes. Uh, etc. But before we get a bit more into that, we do have uh, a bit more on the general situation with the labour movement in Canada. Uh, I would like to take a short commercial break. Um, Connected to what we have been talking about, there's actually a fantastic campaign that has been launched. There is a launch meeting coming up uh, on April 23rd at 5pm in Toronto. The campaign is called Picket Lines Mean Do Not Cross. Uh, Now Fight Back and others have launched this campaign to basically re-establish this tradition to fight for this tradition in the labor movement because picket lines are actually under threat uh there have been many examples of this there have been teachers crossing uh caretakers picket lines there has been all sorts of stuff where union leaders saying that it's acceptable actually to cross a picket line um but yeah we need to reintroduce that idea that tradition in the labor movement that picket lines mean do not cross Um, So, yeah, we have a launch. And this is something that we believe everyone should get involved in. Everybody in the movement, everybody in the labor movement, if you believe that we need to defend hard pickets, that we need to defend picket lines, and essentially that is defending the union, that is defending the right to strike, then please join us at the Picket Lines Mean Do Not Cross launch meeting uh, in Toronto, April 23rd at 5 p.m. Uh, The address is 58 Cecil Street, uh, in Toronto. So yeah, if you uh, and, and if you wanted more details, you can find it on our website. If you can't find it, just 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 drop us a line, uh, send us an email, uh, give us a call, et cetera, and we will give you the details for that. But I encourage
1: you to come out to that. It's very important that we yeah. website uh, is Marxist.ca, email is fightback at Marxist.ca.
0: Yes, thank you. Um, one other thing before we get back into it here. So you know normally we do a little plug for to get your subscription to Fightback. I'm happy to say it seems to be going very well. And and uh, yeah, we're we we, we going to start a new thing, try out a new thing here where we just thank our latest subscribers. So just going back a week, we've actually had 18 people uh, subscribe. Uh, that's uh, 16 to our English language newspaper, Fightback, and two to La Reposte Socialiste, our French uh, language uh, paper. And we'd like to thank Sarah, Zachary, Sabrina, Uh, Dominic, uh, Dominic got a solidarity subscription, which is, and we encourage everyone to do this, which is not just subscribing to the paper, but supporting us on a sustained basis monthly, giving us a monthly amount of money that helps us do what we do. Uh, Yasin, Hannah, Elliot, Antoine, Misty, Miko, Miko, Matthew, and Kahir, all got Solidarity subscriptions as well. So extra thanks to these people, Candice, Stephen, Rowan, Zaina, another Zachary, and Tristan. So yeah, big thanks to these 18 people, uh, in particular, those that got Solidarity subscriptions to really help fight back, do what we do. And yes, we're increasing our subscriber base. And we appeal to you listening today, if you don't have your subscription to Fight Back or to La Riposte Socialiste, our French paper, um, go online and and get your subscription, help us out. And yeah, get a solidarity subscription, help, sus, help us sustain and build the forces of Marxism uh, in Canada. Um, so yeah, getting back into it. Yeah, you-, I, I, I you should, I should
1: I was oh, just sorry, to you want to come in here, Alex? That, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, actually, if if you want, if you get a subscription, give us a donation, get a solidarity subscription, and you and if you've got a short message you want us to read out, uh, we, we will consider it. You know, depending yes. on the co- co- content of the message. <laughs>
0: Right. Yes. That's maybe another thing that we're going to try to do during the show is, is we'll list out subscri- subscribers. We'll thank you. And yes, if you want to send us a short message, if it's a good message, we'll, we'll read it out on the podcast for you uh, as is possible. Um, so yeah, um, please go to our website, marksit.ca, get your subscription, shoot us a message, drop us a line. Um, yeah. And maybe you'll hear your name next week on the podcast. Um, so yeah, back into it here. Uh, on the topic of, yeah, the general situation of the labor movement, um, well as I've mentioned, we've seen uh, a series of bad deals. <laughs> um, what would normally not 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 be possible what was less likely. you used to see union signed deals as two or three percent wage increase a year uh, when inflation was lower. So it was you know a lot of times the the wages were keeping pace with inflation maybe a little bit of stagnation, maybe there's a little bit of wage erosion. But now the interesting thing we have is rising inflation, people's real wages being eroded, and unions signing really bad deals, <laughs> either 0% or 1%, which is, a, an, in effect, a wage a decrease. Um, but yeah, I don't know, Alex, do you want to speak more to this, the, just the general straight of the labor movement and, and the fact that, yeah, we really haven't seen much of a strike movement?
1: Um, yes. Well, there's been a bunch of uh, negotiations in the college sector, in universities, and, and, and strike votes, sometimes quite healthy strike votes, 80, 90, e- even 100% strike votes have been uh, registered. And, and they set a strike deadline, you know, like midnight on a Monday morning, there's the strike deadline. And then what happens? Yeah, they, they, sell, they sign for 1% or, or sometimes 1.5% and call that a victory when in fact that's a 4% wage cut with current inflation and 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 inflation may even go up higher than that and and the actually we also saw yeah the cp rail cp rail that you know that they were it was unclear actually it was a bit of a both of a strike and a lockout and again they were on a picket line a couple of days but then they just they settled for binding arbitration yeah, so, what you
0: you want to explain binding arbitration
1: for everybody? Yes, so so binding arbitration is a we're totally opposed to it, and we're opposed to it for a number of reasons. Uh, one, in principle, and two, because it doesn't work. But it it is for this union bureaucracy that is making a lot of money, off you know all of these legal and illegal corruption mechanisms that they don't want to strike strike. Uh, stops the Jews coming in, strike is very uh, uh, disrupting, and, uh, and they just want an easy life. They want a quiet life. Actually, Tr- Trotsky spoke about this a fantastic little essay called The Trade Unions in the e- Epoch of Imperialist Decay, where he explained that in the period of capitalist crisis, that the labor bureaucracy actually starts merging with the state and uh, the bosses, in order to be a mediator between the work, rather than being workers' representatives, they end up being a mediator and a facilitator of the ruling class, right? Although you shouldn't take that to ultra-left uh, extent and say that we should reject unions. No, we should support unions, uh, but we should make sure that unions are militant on the basis of workers' democracy. But bringing, bringing it back to finding arbitration, but on principle, this is a total violation of the workers' democratic right to decide their own contract. What binding arbitration is, is rather there be a strike, rather than there be dispute and free negotiation, that it gets sent to a bunch of lawyers. It gets sent to the union's lawyer, the boss's lawyer, and the big arbitrator lawyer, men in suits, not workers, people who don't have any dirt under their fingernails, Decide what is a fair deal, and I, I actually I think what was it? It's CP Rail, they uh, they they had a arbitrate. What the, one of the reasons for the dispute was last time they went to biding arbitration, the the boss was de- demanding like I think it was a forty percent cut in the pension, and and the workers said, well, we don't want a pension cut would the arbitrator give them a 20% cut in their pension, right? And so now, the, and then the workers are just saying, no, no, we don't want the, uh, uh, we want to reverse that pension cut. Well, it's been sent to an arbitrator again. Do you think he's going to reverse the pension cut? I don't think so. And I, I Actually, he's more likely to either accept the boss's 40% cut in the pension or cut him down the middle and go 30% cut, right? Overwhelmingly, these lawyers and bureaucrats End up siding with the boss overwhelmingly, and and so workers should not sign off for it. On it, you should fight, and and the bureaucrats should stop proposing this and stop supporting this as a way of disorganizing struggle.
0: Yeah, exactly. So in many ways, what you have is class collaboration, but you have class collaboration between the the workers' leaders and the bosses in in a binding arbitration, in which. It's not this booming, nice capitalism in the post-war boom that could afford to throw a few crumbs. It's one that is demanding cuts. So the arbitrator goes, "Oh, well, I guess what is realistic is maybe not all of the cuts, but some of the cuts." <laughs> uh, so they they arbitrate the situation and they recommend uh, either extremely. Bad cuts, or uh, you know, definitely, definitely, this is not the binding church is not the way to win anything. <laughs> it's not. It's not even the way to stop the cuts from the from the boss. The attacks. The only thing that can do that is struggle. Is the class struggle, <laughs> striking collective strike uh, by the working class. Um, and I think again, I, we did mention what's happened. The situation in the U.S. I think. In particular, this Kellogg strike, I'll mention again, that, that that's what that demonstrates. You think they would have won that 15% wage increase if they didn't go on strike for three months. No way. They would have never got that if they went into some sort of binding arbitration. So I think that's very important that we take that lesson. And that's one that we need to defend in the labor movement today. So yeah, you've seen a wave of, I mean, we talked about CP Rail. You've seen a wave of college strikes, uh, university strikes, um, and- uh, or not even strikes, actually, <laughs> it's important. that <they're> not strikes, <laughs> strike votes, <laughs> uh, sometimes not even strike votes, <laughs> uh, sometimes a mediated process that ends up accepting. There was one at uh, University of Alberta uh, where one union ex- went in asking for 5.25% wage increase and came out with zero over three years uh, Just ho- and didn't even put a strike on the table. Well, really, the only way, this all goes back to the May, the only way to, to stop the situation was to organize a strike. And, and I guess that tradition has been lost in some sectors of the labor movement. So we need to revive that.
1: I, I, um, I, should, I, should, I, should, I should come in. Uh, there's, a, there's a danger of us being interpreted in an ultra-left fashion. There right? is. And, and, and I, I'm going to sort of cut across that right now. Workers don't want to go on strike. Why would you go on strike? Why would you want to go on strike? Sometimes there's there's this uh, tendency amongst student radicals to think, oh yeah, workers just want to go on strike every day. And, you know, workers go to work to start revolution. No, workers go to work to pay the bills, to pay the rent, put food on the table, send their kids to school. Um, that's why workers go to work. Nobody wants to go on strike, right? We understand that. But what happens when the boss is cutting your wages, your pension, your benefits? What happens when inflation is eroding your standard of living? If you have a leadership that says, we are not prepared to fight under any conditions, well, then the boss goes, oh, great. I can just cut and slash everything. You, you know, They say the best way to provide peace is to prepare for war. And uh, whereas the leaders of the labor movement say, no, 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 we won't fight under any condition. And that's why everything is going backwards. And so you mu- people, you need to be prepared to strike. Nobody wants to strike. And then no threat is credible unless you're willing to back it up with action. Right. People people understand this quite well in terms of international relationships, international relations, but... Th- But then it seems to be completely forgotten in terms of the class struggle, in terms of uh, union negotiations. So we don't, yeah, we're not saying go strike every day. We're saying if you're not prepared to, then be prepared to take cuts and cuts and cuts and cuts. Because if you're weak, weakness invites aggression. And this, this isn't about reasonableness, this is about power. This is about power of the workers versus power of the bosses. There is not a happy middle ground. They will just exploit and take advantage if they can.
0: Yeah, exactly. I think that's an important clarification. So, uh, yeah, we we working class people really. I mean, who who really likes that? Who really likes to go on a strike? It's not. It's not uh, some amazing situation, right? But the fact of the matter is, yes, precisely as you stated, if you. If you basically from the get-go rule out striking, the you you have taken away your only way of deterring the attacks, and that's just defensive. You have also you haven't. There's no way you're going to win anything that way. You're not going to get better living conditions. So yes, we do need to, uh, and yes, this isn't a strike doesn't happen overnight. Uh, uh, we we need to have these discussions in the labor movement and revive that tradition and fight for. Uh, the, the the ranks of the labor room to, to to understand this and to take ownership over their own unions, to get, take ownership over the workplaces, to take ownership over potential strike action. Once workers see that the only way that they can actually stop the attacks and living conditions is to go on strike and they debate it out and they democratically accept it, uh, that. That that is what we want. That is that is the way that you can actually have a successful strike. Um, So I guess that kind of leads a bit into the next point, um, which is, yeah, what what do we do? Uh, We have these bad deals. We don't just want to be cynical and think that we can just uh, that that the situation is just all bad. And it's always going to be that way or, and, and that we can just snap or or that, or that we can simply snap our fingers and it's going to be good. But yeah, what do we, what do we do? I guess people listen to this podcast. here probably wonder, man, this labor room is not doing so good. It's a bad situation, (laughs) but, but there it, it some, sometimes you can be a bit fatalistic about it. It's just the way it is. How are you going to do it? I'm not, I can't change the unions. They're just that way. Sometimes there can be just a, a recoil from the union movement because it, it, it isn't a, you know, who, who wants to be involved in a union where the, the leadership like Unifor is doing what they're doing. Right. Um, we don't believe in that. We believe we are optimistic. We believe that there is a solution to the problem. Um, I don't know, Alex, do you want to come in on here? Like what, what is to be done? What do we do?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well um, we need militancy and we need working class democracy. I think one thing we forgot to talk about, uh, especially related to the CP strike, is, bu- is back-to-work legislation. So, uh, should we deal with it now, or did you want to deal with it? Yeah, later? Yeah,
0: right. Forgot about that. Yeah, we should probably deal with that now because that is connected to well, it is partially connected to bind- binding arbitration, actually. So, and yeah. it is connected to s- striking and the class struggle. Uh, so, yeah, bind- back-to-work legislation is uh, is a it's a What's the way to put it? It's a rot (laughs) that's growing in the labor movement. Uh, It's being used again and again and again to break the democratic right to strike, to break the right. uh, uh, Yeah. to break the right to strike is break the right to be in a union essentially, because you can be in a union, but it doesn't matter because you exercise, as soon as you exercise any rights, you get it taken away from you. You can't strike. Um, So yeah, but this recently came up in the CP rail dispute uh, I don't know, Alex, do you want to explain a bit of this? I know you followed it more than me.
1: Yeah. So, the, in CP Rail, there was the strike lockout uh, for a few days. And eventually, it went, uh, they agreed, the union agreed to binding arbitration. And as part of their rationale for binding arbitration was that, well, there was going to be back to work legislation inevitably. So, we, we might as well agree to it ourselves which I think is that you might as well fall on your sword before you are executed. And, and really, does it make any difference? right? But binding uh, back-to-work legislation has become a disgusting feature in Canadian labour relations. It used to be, back in the day, an extreme situation that uh, back-to-work legislation was used. Actually, the, the, the name is a misnomer, It's illegalizing strikes. It is removing the democratic right to strike. It is forcing uh, slave labor, in essence. You must work or you will be fined and imprisoned. That's what it is. It's disgusting, utterly disgusting. Uh, People have got a right to work and a right to withdraw their labor. It's a basic democratic right. So it's a dictatorial right of a dictatorial regime. But it used to be a very special situation, and now it has become commonplace it has become t- commonplace and then bosses just sit back and wait for the government to legislate and then union leaders just go oh there's nothing we can do it's illegal nothing we can do oh we hate this oh it's terrible and but what can we do da, 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 da. and it's like well the reality is legality is not justice right legality is not justice No. The fact is, many things in just were legal, slavery was legal, apartheid was legal, violation of women's rights was legal, right? And trade unions were illegal. Back in the 19th century, you join a trade union, they could lock you up for joining a conspiracy to raise wages. That's what it was called. And it involved yeah, the Toll Puddle Martyrs in Britain. They were sent to Van Diemen's Land, Australia, New Zealand, and for, for organising a trade union. And, and same in Canada, same in the United States, that it was only by going on illegal strike that workers won their right to have a union, won, won their rights to strike. And, and, now, and now we're basically going back to those times. And and it's not easy, don't pretend it's easy, but until this is going to be used more and more and more and the right to strike is not worth the piece of paper it's written on until workers are actually, and unions are prepared to defy back to work legislation. We don't pretend it's easy, but the alternative is this perpetual erosion of union rights. And so somebody somewhere has got to step up. Yeah, exactly. So I think that is
0: a very important issue to address. Um, Yeah, we need a generalized, um, we need, you know, you start with discussing it, that understanding how to beat back-to-work legislation. Because if you, if I think a lot of times in the living room, it's like, what do you do? What are you going to do about it it's it's it and therefore an acceptance or we'll challenge it in the courts heard this a lot after well it's too late by then there it has already been overturned in courts it doesn't stop governments from using it uh so uh i think that yeah it's very important that we discuss like how to defeat backdoor legislation and yes a law at the end of the day if defied on mass Is not worth the paper it's written on. And labor leaders have the power and resources to mobilize their members and educate them about this. I think that back to work, and yes, back to work legislation has been spreading precisely because of the acceptance of it, which is the acceptance of attacks on union rights and attacks on unions uh, in general. And this is all connected to the erosion of wages as well, erosion of living conditions, because why would the bosses give anything if you're going to accept it? And if even if you do fight, you're going to accept the back of work legislation anyway. So there's no real reason to uh, to back down (laughs) from in uh, if you're if you're a capitalist or you're the government, you don't really have to back down that much when workers, when unions are threatening strike action, um, because you, you know that it won't go anywhere, probably won't go anywhere. <laughs> so, yeah, that's that is related to the whole situation. Um, but, yeah, maybe we can get into a bit. Yeah, this is the state of the labor movement. Um, Alex,
1: you had something you want to add on here? Well, yeah, we've got a right to talk on this, right? We do. Hey, but- yeah. P- people say, oh, uh, you Marxists, you radicals, you just propose whatever. Uh, you, you don't, you're not on the ground. You don't understand the reality. You know, I've heard all of these speeches. I'm sorry. Actually, 20 years ago, I was president of the Teaching Assistance Union at the University of British Columbia. And uh, the, the government of the day was raising our tuition fees, cutting our wages, putting a wage freeze cutting and, and we went on a very good strike back in the day and we were on strike for three weeks and what did they do back to work legislation against teaching assistants as if someone's going to die because they don't get their french literature essay marked right i, I was personally actually quite surprised because I, again I, I didn't think they would do that a bunch a bunch of uh, academic workers. But yes, they did. But the difference here is that union was led by Marxists and we defied. We defied and uh, we blockaded the university, put 5,000 people surrounding the university. And we actually threatened the government with a public sector general strike. And they blinked. They blinked. And so I led a illegal strike and there was no fines. There's no imprisonment that we were practically daring them sort of like, yeah, come on, make us martyrs, spread the movement, pour some gasoline on the flames. And and that's why they blinked. Because uh, the workers are prepared to fight and struggle if they have a leadership that is prepared to fight and struggle with them and give the arguments and give people the confidence. And, and, and that's why you know, Trotsky in the transitional program talks about the crisis of modern society is the crisis of working class leadership. Workers are prepared to fight. Actually, you've got these sellout contracts. I'll give you an example. Yeah, you've got these 1% contracts when there's 6% inflation. And uh, the union leadership takes this to the members and say, well, do you agree with this? Do you ratify this? What ends up happening? The workers vote for it with 60%. You know what that means? That means the workers are opposed to it, right? And, but the leadership have said, we are not prepared to fight. And the leadership said, you are weak and you will lose. And it's one thing to fight a vicious enemy with officers who are willing to organize and struggle. It is another thing to fight a vicious enemy with officers have told you that they are going to betray and they have no leadership. So that's what a 60% ratification vote means, that people go, well, I don't like this, but with these leaders, we've got no hope of winning, so I might as well sign it rather than go into a strike that we're going to lose with these people, right? The missing link is leaders that are prepared to fight, leaders that are democratically accountable to the rank and file and help educate and organize people about their strength and not their weakness.
0: Yeah, I think this segues nicely into the next point of, uh, what do we do? Well, I, that strike that, that you were involved in, that you helped lead, uh, with the TAs at UBC was, a, I think a good example of that. Uh, yeah, strength, showing strength, be daring uh, and, and, and workers democracy, right? Uh, it wasn't some magical, uh, leader that decided everything behind closed doors. Uh, and as is what happens now, I think quite often you get this, everyone probably sees that uh, there's a strike and then, and then all of a sudden, nope, there's a deal, no details. It will be voted on and you get the details when you vote on it. Basically, what's being done is it's top-down to control because the deal's bad, <laughs> and to make sure that nobody can organize to resist the bad deal. Uh, um, yes, yeah, yeah, so if the deal was good, why not tell everyone? Yeah, yeah, shout it out loud. The only reason why you'd keep it secret is to protect the employer. Like, and and now quite often that's argued. Oh no, we got to protect the bargaining agreement. Well, okay, the employer requested that you keep it secret from your members. No. So this is all related back to this is all related back to workers democracy, (laughs) what that means and why that's important, because missing from all of this bad stuff that we talked about is we talked about the Unifor deal, for example, no workers democracy, no, no basic transparency so that the ranks themselves can judge the situation and decide (laughs) Uh, that is what is missing here we've mentioned a few things already I don't know Alex do you want to speak a bit to the point of workers democracy
1: absolutely democratic workers control is this is what is at the heart of the rot in Canadian labor movement is top-down bureaucratic control silence and secrecy like they, they try to suppress the information of the corruption in uniform S- scandalous just scandalous let the workers know and let the workers decide. We need open bargaining, none of of this sort of like a black hole of secrecy of bargaining. That doesn't help the workers at all. In fact, so when, yes, when I was a union leader, we had open bargaining. So if if, uh, workers wanted to sit in on bargaining, they had that right to the degree that we could fit people in the room. And, uh, but we used to write regular reports Blow by blow. We put this, the, bo- the boss said that, you know, they gave us this. We decided, you know, the bargaining team thought we should give a concession on this thing, you know, push back and forth blow by blow. And then that comes to a membership meeting and the membership have the right to grill the bargaining team on a regular basis and vote on whether, you know, to hold the line. And, and people are adults. People aren't going to go on strike for every petty bit of language in a collective agreement, but they have the right to decide. So like, look, should we make a concession on that point or not, right? Ask the bargaining team questions and then bolt on the bargaining team's report on, on a regular monthly basis during bargaining. And then if you're in a struggle, you need to have weekly membership meetings where every, every point of the strike is uh, ratified by the rank and file. This isn't the negation of leadership at all. It's not the negation of leadership. There's a, you know, a dialectical interaction between rank and file democracy and leadership. The job of the leadership is to educate and propose. It is the job of the membership to decide and enact. And with that uh, relationship, then, uh, then that's what unleashes workers' milit- militancy, workers' democracy, workers' control, and workers' power. Right, and 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 I'll I'll admit to being totally biased. That I'm. Why am I biased in favour of democracy? I'm biased in favour of democracy because I think the workers need to struggle. I think capitalism is in crisis. I think the only way for the workers to keep their heads up and gain more is by fighting. I'm biased. I'm in favour of fighting. There is my bias. I have stated it. But it is impossible to fight if. Only a minority wants to fight. It's only possible to fight if the majority wants to fight. And so I want the utmost of democracy to find out if the majority wish to fight. If I haven't convinced the majority of the necessity to fight, then that fight is going to lose. However, from the perspective of a complicit bureaucracy that's tied to to the boss, maybe the majority do want to fight and are prepared to fight. Well, a a bureaucracy that doesn't wish to fight wants to suppress and distract that information and turn that majority prepared to struggle into a defeat, right? So we've got every interest in workers' democracy because you can only succeed if you have a majority. Whereas uh, those wishing to sell out, they want to suppress that majority and instill the passivity and the, and the betrayal of the minority.
0: Yeah. I think even one thing that I've heard quite often is say there's a strike and then there's back to work legislation. And then we say, well, the back to work legislation needs to be defied. And then quite often some, some, some people, the, the union leaders, the bureaucracy, or sometimes even people on the left say, oh, the workers weren't ready for that. I'm like, who are you to say that? Exactly. Why don't you let them discuss it and decide on whether or not they want to do that? No, 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 can't do that. It's So basically the people that say that, or it maybe even it doesn't have to do with back to work legislation, could be a strike. Oh no, they're not ready to strike. So you've decided for them that they're not, basically this is an anti-democratic argument. So we got to really put it, so there's a difference between a bureaucracy deciding to betray and to give up, to give up before the fights began or to give up when the fights got a little too tough and then nobody learns anything. People go, oh, well, what are we, uh, whatever, whatever. And then that's where you get the passivity and the cynicism in the movement. Yeah. And that's then the bureaucracy uses that to claim <laughs> that workers don't want to fight. Well, they're responsible for that. So, uh, but there's a difference between that. And maybe it gets discussed amongst the workers and the workers discuss it out fully and come to the decision, we can't win or we're not ready to fight. And, and that could be a mistake but at least the workers themselves made the mistake and then they can actually learn, Oh, that was a mistake. Next time. We're not going to make that mistake rather than when it's behind closed doors, secretive meeting of the bureaucracy with the boss, uh, and they make the decision for the workers, nobody learns anything. And it just is, it has a knock-on effect. And And then it, oh, and then it leads to more depression in the movement and people don't want to fight because why would you fight if they're going to do that every time? And then, so yeah, we really need to put the workers' control, workers' democracy, workers' control over the strike Uh, over their damn representatives, right? (laughs) I think it's very important with these corruption scandals, full transparency of what's going on, especially during a collective bargaining process. So the workers, we have all the interest. If you want higher wages, if you want better living conditions, you have every interest in making sure that those things are widely known (laughs) during the negotiation period, what is actually happening uh, so that people can discuss it And, 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 and they can judge for themselves whether or not they agree with what the bargaining team is doing. Uh, and actually quite often when that's made public, the, the workers themselves see how bad the boss is. They see how bad the boss is and it makes them want to to strike. It makes them want to fight because they're like these bastards, how can they be doing that? Or is keeping it secret is shielding them. So yeah, I think that is very important connected to this and I do believe it is connected to the to the situation of Jerry Diaz of the, the general corruption, the, the workers must be able to control their representatives. They must be able to recall their representatives, not once every few years, but immediately. If there's a problem, workers must be able to, to recall their representatives, the representatives also, and this is actually uh uh, connected to the divorce, you see, of the trade union bureaucracy from the ranks, workers' rep on a workers' wage. If you're making six figures, you're making more than that. You, you, a, after a certain period of time, you start to you're you're living and you're hobnobbing with the bourgeois and their representatives. You forgot what it means to be a worker. You forgot what it means to live the life of a working class person. And so, when the contract comes up, it's like, oh well. 1% wage increase, doesn't affect me, who cares? <laughs> exactly. I'm all right. And they'll inc- the union leaders will maybe even increase their own wage in the meantime. So yeah, I think that these things are real central pillars to a healthy workers democracy. The, the election of all officials, the recall of any official immediately if the workers are not happy with those officials, complete transparency what the officials are doing, uh, and a worker's rep on a worker's wage. (laughs) That that, that is what we defend in terms of workers' democracy. And we need to fight for that in the movement today. And all these arguments about, no, we can't make it details public and stuff. It's just just a self-defeating argument. It's a self-defeating argument for the movement. And it's not the way to build a healthy movement. Yeah, do you have any final thoughts on
1: uh, workers' democracy? Yeah, well, I found if if you talk to sort of union apparatchiks, they will tell you that workers are stupid, workers are lazy, workers have low consciousness, uh, and they will tell you nothing but bad things about us. Well, in fact, they're talking about themselves. Because my experience is, is that the working class, working class people are the most creative people on the planet. In fact, as Ted Grant said, not a light shines, not a wheel turns without the kind permission of the working class. And if you, leadership is important, leadership is vital, you know, a leadership on the one side that doesn't suppress the democratic will of the workers to fight, but also a leadership that instills confidence in the power of the workers, that working class has got more power than any other force in society, in potentiality. When workers are given a democratic environment, that they understand that their wishes are sovereign and they have control of the process, then you have such a flowering of creativity. I saw this, I saw this in the struggles that I've led, the creativity of the working class that, that's independent of the leadership, but the leadership provides the environment to promote that and encourage that and not, rather than suppressing it. Under under the sort of interest of extreme bureaucratic control, which you only need that bureaucratic control to sell out. You don't need that bureaucratic control to fight, and 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 then and then people are adults, and people people are adults, and come to a conclusion. You know what? If some not every struggle wins, but let's be out there. Not every struggle wins, but people are adults. They can come to a conclusion. Look, we're not going to win this one. We've we've got to compromise and and settle. That should be a democratic decision too. If if I'm if you unfortunately take uh, that end, right? So yes, we, we've got to have that uh, workers control, workers creativity, and that will end the rot. That will totally end the rot in the labor movement, and and we need a revolution. We need a cultural revolution within the labor movement.
0: Yeah, precisely. I think moving on to the final point here. Uh, is intimately related to workers' democracy. Workers' democracy for what? And I think it's the general ideas in the labor movement about what the labor movement is fighting for. Um, and this is connected to the to the question of reformism, not even reformism. Sometimes <laughs> it's connected to a belief that we what the system can give us is not acceptable for us. That's not what we base our demands on. We base ourselves on the aspirations of the working class, what the working class needs, right? And then if capitalism, the current economic system that we live under cannot offer that, that we stand, and that is true. (laughs) You see it every day in any union contract. We can't afford it, it's not realistic. Actually, the lower wage, the acceptance of lower wage uh, increases in trade union contracts is an acceptance of what capitalism can offer now which is nothing. And the, and the fact of the matter is the labor leader the leadership in the labor movement have accepted the market they have accepted the private market private ownership of the means of production and capitalism. So they therefore have to accept what capitalism can offer which in the past was maybe a little bit of crumbs here and there especially if you put up a bit of a fight and today uh, is less is less and less and less uh, and they definitely can't afford a living or a a, a, a wage keeping pace with inflation um, so it is important that we we have a perspective that is a socialist perspective that is fighting for a new system against the capitalist system uh, this isn't to say that no there can be no, no, we can't win anything from capitalists, that we can't win anything from the capitalists in the in, in an epoch of crisis like the one we are living. It is, but it is important that we broaden our horizons and that we're not simply accepting the framework that capitalism is providing us, <laughs> that we, we, we do believe that we can, to, to go back from the to the beginning of the podcast, the massive corporate profits that have been, <laughs> that are piling up, that we, we question the inherent logic of the system and, and we fight against the system. And that, that is connected to why we are socialists and a socialist perspective for the labor movement, which is also intimately uh, linked with, <clears throat> with workers' democracy, because socialism needs workers' democracy. That is what it is all about. Um, yeah, Alex, you have a few words about this?
1: Yes, we absolutely need to fight for class struggle, revolutionary socialist trade unionism. We need to win the trade unions to a socialist perspective that does not accept the logic of capitalism. That is a vital struggle. And then that that leads you, you people say, oh, no, people aren't interested in these uh, abstract political questions. BS, BS. The fact is that having a perspective that does not recognize the right of the capitalist to rule, does not recognize that $1.4 $1.4 trillion of profits is just, just the, 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 the logic of doing business while workers get cuts and cuts and cuts. No, we don't recognize that. And we fight for what is just, just for the workers, not feasible under capitalism. And if capitalism cannot provide what is just for the workers, then capitalism needs to go. And the unions need to adopt that perspective. And then fight and then fight for what is just. And then we'll find out what capitalism is prepared to provide. We'll find out. In the States, yes, there's been more militancy and the workers have got better contracts than in Canada, where there has been bureaucratic suppression and corruption. Right? So, but we and that's what fight back international Marxist tendency, Lera Post Socialist does. That we're fighting for a revolutionary socialist perspective within the trade unions to, to win it. Actually, this is the 50th anniversary of the 1972 general strike in Quebec, the revolutionary general strike. The precursor for that was a series of anti-capitalist manifestos won by the trade unions, the CSN manifesto most uh, classically. Um, and, and actually in terms of respecting of legality, this is also the 10th anniversary of the Quebec student strike where all of these anti-protest laws were passed, and what did they do? The students marched en masse, hundreds of thousands of people, made those laws, those illegal laws, a dead letter. Until we disrespect the right of the capitalist to rule, workers will go backwards, and your wages and your conditions and your ability to pay your rent will go backwards. Right? It really It, it isn't an abstract thing, It is literally being able to make your car payments. It is being able to put food on the table is intrinsically linked to a socialist perspective for the trade unions. And and we are making this argument. Uh, We we have played a role in launching the picket lines mean do not not cross campaign and, and to build that tradition back so that nobody crosses a picket line. It is unacceptable and everybody understands how that is scandal! It is a scandal for anybody to cross a picket line, and especially any trade union to facilitate crossing a picket line. It should be, you know, a, one of crossing a picket line. It should be the eleventh commandment: "Thou shalt not cross a picket line." It's worse than the other ten, actually. All of the other ten, and and, and we've got to instill that. We've got to instill a socialist perspective. So, if you believe in this, join us. Right. Join us for fighting democratic trade unions uh, and unions that win and unions don't always uh, and unions that don't always lose. And the fact that unions and workers power is achievable. It's achievable in a lifetime. It can happen. It will happen. Inflation will inevitably make it happen sooner or later. But the the action of socialist revolutionaries will make it happen quicker so we're not facing all these defeats. Join us and let's get it done.
0: You have been listening to This Week in the Canadian Revolution, where we analyze the events of the class struggle, the turbulence and polarization brought upon by the crisis of the capitalist system in order to prepare activists for the coming revolutionary events, so that we can fight back and build socialism in our lifetime. You can find us at marxist.ca, and we will be doing this podcast every week, so we hope that you tune in again.